Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we've had the opportunity to witness two souls saved by grace making a proclamation of their love for you, for Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and His church. I ask, Lord, that in light of this baptism, you would cause this passage to become very real to us, that we might see, Lord, that it is always better to obey you than to obey man when man is asking us to do that which is contrary to your will. I ask, Father, that you would take this narrative, this true telling of the gospel going out in the early church, and you would make it known to us that we might not only understand it and see it clearly, but by your Holy Spirit, you might give us the same joy and the same courage that you gave to the apostles so long ago. We want to be a faithful body of believers. We ask, Lord, that you would take this word, which is yours, and that you would give us the desire to obey it. Show us the wisdom in that. Show us the joy in that that we might individually and even more so collectively as a church be faithful witnesses to the mission field in which we live. We're so thankful for the preservation of this word, Father, and for you calling each and every one of us to follow Christ. I pray we would do that right now by listening well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning. Um, I was joking with Lori on Friday night, and I suggested that I might want to deviate from Acts chapter 5 and possibly go back to Exodus chapter 20 and deal with lying again. Yes. For over a month now, you were fully aware of a surprise that I was not. I did not come to know of the surprise until Friday. And uh, as much as I enjoyed that, I'm greatly concerned that you have the amazing abilities to hold things in private that you ought not. No, I'm kidding. It was such a blessed night. Thank you so much for uh, just a wonderful evening and just getting time to spend with you. I didn't get a chance to go out to graduation, but that was infinitely better uh, being with you guys. So thank you. We are going to do Acts chapter 5. We're not going to go back to Exodus 20. So if you don't have your Bible open to Acts 5, do so please. We're going to be looking at verses 27 to 42. The title of the sermon is To Obey or Not to Obey. And you say, well, that is the question. And it is the question for the apostles in the context of this passage. It's such a simple teaching for those who profess Christ, and yet it still seems to elude us in so many ways. If your doctor told you that you had less than a year to live unless you started dieting, losing weight, and going to the gym five days a week, I would imagine that even though you knew or would know that that would take some suffering and obedience on your part, that you would listen to your doctor because you want to spend some more time with your loved ones, and if you're a Christian, you want to fulfill the work that God has called you to do. If your boss tells you that for the next month you will need to work 60-plus hour weeks or the business is going to go under, I imagine for a month or two you would do that. You would obey and you might suffer some long work weeks, but you would do that and you would likely rejoice over it because your job was providing for you, your family, clothes, food, shelter, medical care. Sometimes obedience, and we all know this, sometimes obedience brings suffering. Sometimes obedience brings great suffering, and that was true for our apostles here in Acts chapter 5. If you remember from last week, in the midst of God doing all these signs and wonders through His Spirit, the apostles were faithful to continue to preach and teach a crucified, 
risen, exalted Savior. The Sanhedrin were told they were so jealous, they, arrest, they had arrested Peter and John. Now they're so jealous, they get all 12, they throw them in jail, and they're going to bring the whole Sanhedrin back and try them a second time. But before they can do that, God sends an angel, gets them out of jail for free, and then we're told, look at, look at verse 20, bump back up just a little bit. The angel said to the apostles, go and stand in the temple, the same place they were arrested, and speak to the people all the words about this life, that is, this life in Jesus Christ. They did as they were told. They followed God's specific word, but it did not mean that the Sanhedrin was through in dealing with them. In fact, the captain and his officers, as we saw last week, they come back and they say, we're going to bring you back. And they went peacefully, the apostles did, to stand before the trial once again. And before this day is through, the apostles were going to learn firsthand what Jesus meant when he said in John 15, 20, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And they did. And they did. My beloved, from their simple, loving obedience to God's spoken word, I would like for us this morning to see three absolute truths. These truths do not change. Are you ready? Number one, obeying God is always smart. Number two, believing Jesus is obeying God. And number three, suffering is a sign of obedience. Suffering in the name of Christ is a sign of obedience. Obeying God is always smart. Number two, believing Jesus is obeying God. And number three, suffering is a sign of obedience. By God's grace, we will see these truths this morning. And if we do, and the Spirit is pleased, we can be changed as well. We can find the same joy and the same courage we see in the apostles here in chapter 5. So the theme of the sermon would be this. It is utterly profound. Are you ready? Obeying God is always smart. Disobeying God is always stupid. Obeying God is always smart. Always. And disobeying God is always stupid. Point number one, obeying God is always smart. Look at verse 27 again. And when they, the Sanhedrin, had brought them the apostles, they set them before the council. So they're on trial again. And the high priest questioned the apostles. Verse 28, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. They won't even utter Jesus' name. In this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood, Christ's blood, upon us. And so, trial number two. All 12 apostles are now before the Sanhedrin. The high priest stands up, and this time they're charged with two specific charges. Number one, You continue to preach in the name of Jesus when we told you not to do that. Stop. Number two, you're trying to get his blood on our hands. You're trying to get us in trouble for what happened to him. Now, the first charge of the apostles is 100% accurate. Chapter 4, verse 18, they said specifically, do not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Stop doing it. And the apostles said, we will not. And they kept preaching Christ. Now the second charge, intending to bring Jesus' blood upon them, Peter says in so many words that we're not guilty. And he does that by actually presenting them with the gospel of grace. You see the words to bring someone else's blood upon another person? That was an Old Testament expression of lex talionis. Most of you know that as an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. And so to bring a person's blood 
upon another person was saying, you now owe your life. In other words, they're saying to the apostles, you're trying to get us killed. You're trying to get us in such trouble that our lives are going to be lost because of what happened to your Jesus. Now, Peter states unapologetically that, in fact, they did murder the Christ, but not to condemn them. He tells them that to save them. Look at verse 30. The God of our fathers, so he identifies them as being those who believe in the same Yahweh. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Verse 31, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel. That would include them and forgiveness of sins. So Peter says, listen, Yahweh, whom we all believe in, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, raised this Jesus and seated him at the right hand, the same Jesus that you put to death by nailing him to a tree. They said, you cursed him. And they knew they were drawing from Deuteronomy 21, 23, for every man who is hanged upon a tree on a pole is cursed by God. But God demonstrated his approval for Jesus by raising him up. And not just raising him up by declaring him the leader of this new people, the church, and the savior of the world. And not just giving him these new titles which belong to him, but by granting to him, look at verse 31, granting to Jesus Christ the power to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So far from trying to bring judgment upon the Sanhedrin, Peter and the apostles are presenting Christ as their Savior. He's saying, the very man that you did in fact kill, the very man that you hanged upon a tree and considered cursed by God, God blessed, raised up, and has now given him the power to forgive you of your sins. It's a most profound interaction. Even by men who killed God's Son, Now, beloved, if that's true, if these men could be forgiven of their sins in killing the Christ, then certainly whatever sin you've ever committed can be forgiven by God through faith in Christ too. Amen? What I find so amazing about this account is what is not said. They don't ask the apostles how they got out of jail. Wouldn't that be your first question? I mean, you want to know how did 12 guys in the middle of the night get out of a locked cell that was guarded by trained guards, make their way back out to the temple for the morning service and begin preaching Christ again. They don't ask that. I would have asked that. That would have been at the top of my list. Where'd you go? How'd you get out? Now, if they were seeking truth and they really wanted to know the work and the will of God, they would have asked that, but they don't ask because they don't want to know. They don't want to know the truth. And they don't want to know what God is doing here. Instead, they created an elaborate and false narrative to justify their disobedience to the living God. Going all the way back to Jesus' ministry, they refused the miracles that he testified to. They refused his death and his resurrection. And here in this context, all the undeniable supernatural work of the Holy Spirit they will not believe is of God. And so they remain in the dark. They remain fools I lovingly say this, they remain stupid in their life because they will not see what God is doing and submit to God. My beloved, ignorance to God's revealed word will not help you on the day of judgment. Romans 14, 12 says, each of us will give an account of himself to God. You're not going to be able to stand before God and say, I did not know. You're certainly not going to be able to say that after being here today because you will have heard the gospel. As a Christian, you, every time you knowingly disobey God and you live in clear opposition to Him, 
you are essentially embracing a reality and a faith that does not exist. You're being like the Sanhedrin. You're not willing to see truth, and you are making yourself a fool, and I would argue putting yourself in great danger. Look at verse 29. But Peter, so here's the juxtaposition of the Sanhedrin who would not see the great work of God and obey God, but Peter and the apostles answered, quote, we must obey God rather than men. So Peter says, listen, we plead guilty to the first charge. You told us not to preach Christ. We went right back out in the exact same place, and we preached Christ. And what he's doing here is he's not trying to be rebellious. There was respect by the apostles for the Sanhedrin, but he was appealing to a higher court. Right, The Sanhedrin, they're like the appellate court, and he's going to go to the Supreme Court of not the United States, but of heaven and earth. So he's going to appeal to God himself. And he says, listen, God told us back in Acts 1, chapter 8, you know this, we are to be witnesses and testify to a crucified, risen, exalted Savior. That's our job. So to follow the Sanhedrin's command would have been to disobey God. And they understood something very simple, that if we can get this as we leave today, oh, we'll be in great shape. They understood that, that disobeying God was stupid. So they said, we're not going to do it. We're not going to listen to you even though you told us, probably by pain of death, not to. They understood that obeying God is always smart and disobeying God is always stupid. Their lives, my beloved, had been utterly transformed and so they were seeing truth clearly. They were seeing reality clearly. Right? They understood that the Holy Spirit had truly been poured out at Pentecost. All the signs and wonders testified to the authenticity of Jesus Christ as leader and savior of the world. So they weren't being contentious. We are told in verse 32, they were being faithful witnesses to these things. To what things? To the very truth the Sanhedrin refused to believe. The life, death, resurrection, exaltation of Jesus Christ. To reject Jesus or to profess Jesus and not obey God according to his word, it is the highest form of disobedience. It is the highest form to say there is no God, there is no Christ, or to say there is a Christ and then disobey his word is the most foolish thing any man, woman, or child can do. My beloved, you stand if you are in Christ This very day, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You have the Word of God. If you are a member of this church, then you have the community of believers, the power to live a very smart life. I'm not talking smart intellectual, PhD. I'm talking smart life in obedience to God's Word. You have the Word so you can live. You can know what it is. And you have the Holy Spirit. That means you can do it just like the apostles. Same courage, same boldness, same simple obedience to the Bible. There was a married couple here years ago and they were going through some difficult times and they were contemplating divorce. And they had both agreed that neither were happy in their marriage. Both were professing Christians. Both knew Christ. Both knew that God's word said specifically what God has brought together, let no man tear apart. They knew that. And so we spent some time praying and we spent some time working through God's word and they both realized the utter stupidity of getting a divorce. So they stopped talking about it all together and they got to the hard work of making their marriage work. Why? Because they concluded disobeying God is always stupid and obeying Him is really, really smart all the time. Not easy, but smart. And by God's grace, their, their marriage was reconciled. Now all those present in the courtroom that day, 
The Sanhedrin and the apostles, they all claimed the same God to be their father. And they all believed they were obeying God. The Sanhedrin were saying, you know, we've got to stop this disruptive cult claiming this person, this man, who says he's God. And the apostles were proclaiming Jesus Christ as God, as the leader and Savior of the world. But both could not be right at the exact same time. One group was obeying God and being smart. The other group was disobeying God and being stupid. Now, most Christians, I I would argue, would say, no, I'm living a smart life because I believe in Jesus. And, And you'll quote Scripture. You'll quote 1 John chapter 3, verse 23, the apostle said, this is his, God's commandment. So here's the commandment. Here's the big one. Ready? That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. So you say, well, I believe in Jesus, therefore I'm obeying God. And that may or may not be true. The question that I have in working through this text was, how do we know believing in Jesus is actually obeying God? The Sanhedrin did not think that. The Jew today would not think that. A Muslim would not think that. How do you know that the Bible, in saying that we ought to follow Jesus and believe in Jesus is actually obeying God, how do we know that is really the smart way to live and not the wrong way to live? Point number two, I pray you're still with me. Believing Jesus is obeying God. Point number one, obeying God is always smart. Point number two, believing Jesus is obeying God. What was the Sanhedrin's response to to Peter's offer? Remember, He offered them forgiveness of their sins. He offered them repentance and life in Jesus. Look at verse 33. When they, the Sanhedrin, heard this, when they heard the gospel, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Well, I don't think that's the best response, especially for men who claim to love God. Uh, Their response is telling, and it gives us a really good indication of their heart, does it not? Remember what Jesus said in Luke 6, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, and they were speaking quite clearly. Now, moments earlier, they, remember, they were aghast that the apostles would try to implicate, implicate them in the murder of Jesus. These were holy men. They had just made that claim earlier, but now here they are after the faithful testimony of 12 eyewitnesses to the Messiah. They're enraged, and they want to kill him. In fact, that word enraged in the Greek, it literally means their heart was torn in two. They're so angry and so filled with hatred, they want capital punishment right now. And I bet money there were some of those Sanhedrin's looking for rocks, going, where are some stones that we can get to throw at these guys right now? They want them dead. And they likely would have had their way. I don't think they would have even made it to a cross or to to Pilate at this point in time. But there was a Pharisee, a very well-respected Pharisee, who brought some temperance by God's grace to this situation. Look at verse 34. A Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, he stood up and he gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. Just to be able to do that revealed the the power that he had and the influence that he could put them out for a little bit. The Pharisees only made up, we looked at this a few weeks ago, they only made up a very small minority of the Sanhedrin. It was mostly the, the Sadducees. But they were very popular. The Pharisees were very popular amongst the people. And so if the Sanhedrin was going to get away with killing these 12 apostles of Jesus Christ in light of the following they now had, the thousands in Jerusalem, they were going to need the support of the Pharisees. So they could not dismiss Gamaliel um, and what he was saying. Gamaliel the elder was thought to be the disciple of the well-known Rabbi Hillel. 
which you've probably heard of before. And he was considered at that time the greatest rabbinic teacher in Jerusalem. You probably know him from Acts chapter 22. We'll get there. He was the teacher and instructor of Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor of the church who would become the apostle Paul. But unlike, unlike the Sadducees, the Pharisees believed in the coming of the Messiah. They believed in the resurrection of the dead. They believed in the life of eternal life to come. And so they understood that this teaching from Jesus may have some credence to it. And they were far more apt to hear what the apostles had to say. And so as a Pharisee, he appeals to the Sanhedrin with both history and with God's providence. And he cites two contemporary uprisings, Theudas and Judas, both of which ended in failure. Look at verse 35. He said to them, the Sanhedrin, this is Gamaliel talking, men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. He says, be very careful. It's a warning. Be very careful what you're going to do with these apostles. For before these days, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody. He claimed to be somebody. He was nobody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. So Theodos gets 400 men. They try to rebel against Rome, and the entire movement dissipates, and it ends in defeat. Gamaliel then tells of another revolutionary named Judas. Look at verse 37. It says, after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. Now, we know a little bit more about Judas the Galilean. Back in 6 AD, shortly after the birth of Christ, there was a census to be taken by the governor of Syria, Quintilius. And that census was to be taken to raise more money for the empire. And so Judas came along and he encouraged by force, the Jews not to participate in the census so they didn't have to pay the taxes. In fact, he, he argued that if you did, you were committing treason and idolatry against God, saying that Yahweh is um, Israel's one true living king. But like Thuatus, Judas, who, executed, who was executed, the movement came to a complete halt. Both leaders were dispersed. And so Gamaliel says to the council, you got to take a deep breath and be very, very careful what you're about to do with these men, using the two examples to get them to pause. Look at verse 38. So in the present case, the, the case of the apostles, Gamaliel says, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. There's, there's a sense that, that he might believe. In the Greek, it's, it doesn't translate well, but Several of the commentators said that there's a a hint that he may think that Christ is the Messiah and their message is real. He says, let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. Verse 39, but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So as a Pharisee believing in the sovereignty of God, believing in the providence of God, he draws a correct biblical conclusion. He said, listen, if this undertaking is just of man, then just like Thuatus and just like Judas, the whole thing's going to just dissipate. It's going to go away. Don't waste your time with it. Don't get yourself involved. Don't upset the people. He's giving them a political option here. And, he says, if it is of God, if all that's transpired in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, if all these signs and wonders and the proclamation of the gospel and the growth of the church, if that's of God, then... 
Gamaliel says, you got to be really, really careful. Not only will you be unable to stop the movement because it's God's work and God's will, he said, but even worse, you'll be opposing God. You'll be an enemy of God. Yahweh, the Almighty, the great I Am, creator and sustainer of the universe, says you're going to make God an enemy. And there was a long pause because those words resonated well. And so he told the council in verse 38, keep away from these men and let them alone. Don't get in their way. Let the movement run its course. If it's of man, it will fail. If it's of God, it cannot fail. And they actually, they believed it. They got it. They actually heeded his counsel. What do we know today? I mean, we're, we can look back now after 2,000 years. Was it a failed movement like G- Judas of Galilee? 2,000 years later, the exact opposite of what happened to Judas took place in the movement of Jesus Christ. Faithful believers continued and continue today to testify to the gospel of a risen Savior. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, millions and millions of people have come and continue to come to a saving grace in Jesus Christ, turning away from their sins, receiving forgiveness from God, and being made a son or daughter of the King. This has happened for 2,000 years. People following this leader and this Savior, this Lord of Lord and King of Kings. He has saved He is saving, and he will continue to save. In fact, our very gathering here this morning and the two baptisms that we just had testify to the fact that the movement is still working. It's still going. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. In 2019, so these are relatively recent. These are hard numbers to get, but I wanted to share these with you. Gordon Cromwell did a study, and they purported 2.5 billion professing Christians in the world today. That's one-third of the world's population. Now, if you take out Catholics, that's still 1.2 billion non-Catholic professors, Protestants, Orthodox, and other groups. That's a lot of people, starting from one man and 12 apostles in a very strange land far, far away, 2,000 years later. According to LifeWay research, Christianity is currently growing faster than the world's population. That's good. And evangelical Christianity is growing at double that pace. In fact, in in the year 1900, a little over half the world's population, about 54%, had actually been evangelized. They'd actually heard the gospel. Today, in 2019, it was reported that that number had dropped to 28.4 of those who had never heard. In other words, the gospel continues to go out, and people continue to hear and continue to be saved. The historical record testifies to this. When the real gospel of grace takes hold of a person or a family or a culture, radical changes take place. During the 18th century, prior to the revolution, we saw the first great awakening. And during that time period, in a relatively small populated colonies, 50,000 people came to a saving grace. 350 churches were established. And we saw transformation within the culture. Social reform, real social reform. Not by political force, by transformation of the human heart. The treatment of women, the treatment of children, the treatment of the poor, all increased significantly. Crime decreased. Sexual purity increased. There was political reform. There was economic prosperity. All as a result of this Jesus movement of the gospel going forth. 
my beloved, the historical record is undeniable. Gamaliel was right. Jesus Christ is, in fact, the leader and the Savior of the world. And therefore, to obey God by following Jesus is the smartest thing any man, woman, child, family, or nation can do. Because the gospel is true. Jesus is Savior. He was right. And we testify to that here 2,000 years later. The problem, I don't believe the problem is historical. And I don't even believe the problem is the testimony that we see being played out for centuries now. The problem, I think, for most of us is knowing, are we part of that movement? Am I, am I really a follower of Jesus Christ? I mean, you see, my beloved, the sin has such a deceptive power that we can think one thing and really be living in another way. Look at the Sanhedrin. These were the, the most well-trained religious elite of their time. They're surrounded by signs and wonders. They're hearing the gospel. They saw Christ. They see the apostles, and they still miss God. They miss God. So how can we know? But before we leave today, how can we know that we're being smart by obeying God? How can we know that we're living a smart life by actually following Jesus? You know, to say you follow Jesus is not sufficient. That's not the, the test in Scripture's. To just say, I follow Jesus. That is what's called a said faith. A saving faith is how we know that we're following Christ. Even the demons, James says, they believe, and yet they're not saved. They shudder. How do we know? Well, we know that we're following Christ. We're obeying God when our profession of faith is matched by the way we live our lives. Right? That how we live our lives reveals the faith that we profess in Christ. Put another way, our faith will be revealed by our obedience to God. Our faith will be revealed by our obedience to God. Not obedience to be saved, but if we're saved, you're going to follow God. You're going to obey God. Christ will be your Savior. Last point. Obeying God is smart. Believing Jesus is obeying God. How can you know you're obeying God and following Christ? Point number three, suffering is a sign Not the only sign, but it is a good sign of obedience. Suffering in the name of Jesus is a good sign that you know that you are obeying God. So after careful consideration in our narrative, Luke tells us that, look at verse 39, the latter part, 39b, that they, the Sanhedrin, they took Gamaliel's advice and they let the apostles go. They took his advice and they let him go. But before they let him go, they were going to They were going to exercise some of that pent-up hatred. Remember, their hearts have been torn in two. They're going to exercise that, and they want to give them a very severe warning. So look at verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they, the Sanhedrin, they let them go. They beat them. Now, that sounds almost like Luke is just giving us a cursory historical record of a beating. They knew what that meant. The standard beating for punishment by the Sanhedrin was 39 lashes. Deuteronomy calls it the 40 minus 1. It was a severe punishment. One, if exercised upon you today after being arrested, I imagine that you would have quite a court case. Bare back, bare chest, in a kneeling position, those executing the punishment would take a a three-pronged 
whip made of cowhide. One strap was longer than the other. And then when they would strike the back, one would come over the front. So you'd get 39 lashes, one on the front and two on the back every single time. In fact, it was so severe that it was not uncommon for men and women to die from the punishment. So when you hear the word beat, you must think of it as the 40 minus 1 from Deuteronomy 25. But the flogging of the apostles, and this is what's so extraordinary about the power of the gospel, the flogging of the apostles had the exact opposite effect that the Sanhedrin had hoped for. Right? They wanted to fill the apostles with fear so they would not talk about this Jesus anymore. And they certainly wanted some retribution. I mean, the apostles in their minds are trying to get them killed by blaming Jesus' murder on them. So they wanted to be afraid. They want retribution. But Luke tells us that what they meant for evil produced great good in their lives. In fact, it produced two things, joy and courage. Joy and courage. Look at verse 41. So after this brutal beating, they, the apostles, left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. All twelve, on the outside, physically bleeding, battered, broken, bones likely broken, and yet we're told here that on the inside they're filled with joy. They're rejoicing that they had the opportunity to suffer physically, dishonor for the name of Jesus. They were, Luke tells us, they were counted worthy. Counted worthy. Now that word in the Greek literally means to accurately assess the worth or value of someone or something. You know what they're saying? They're saying the fact that they suffered dishonor for the name of Christ, they were counted worthy in the eyes of God. That God was assessing them as true followers of Jesus Christ. You know, before buying a home, any lender is going to go and they're going to get an appraisal on that home. Right? If you ask for $500,000 to buy a $300,000 house, you're not going to get that loan. They're going to assess it and say, sorry, you're not getting the cash. The apostles are rejoicing here because their suffering was of great value to God. You say, how is that possible? I thought he loved them. He does. He did infinitely. It was valuable to God because it displayed to the world the power of the gospel to transform sinners into saints. The power of the gospel to take people who are so utterly self-centered and change them in their love for Jesus that they will actually suffer and, if necessary, die for Jesus. They rejoiced because to go through suffering for Jesus' name was and remained faithful with a testimony to the authenticity of their faith. They knew it was real. Otherwise, they'd have said enough, and they would have recanted. They rejoiced because I have no doubt they remembered our Lord's precious words from Luke chapter 6 when Jesus said, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and they revile you and they spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Listen, he said, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. They remembered that. With each stripe on their back, they remembered the words of our Lord. The Sanhedrin, they were hoping for discouragement, and it produced joy. They also wanted to produce fear, and instead it did the opposite. It stoked the fires of evangelism. Look at verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they, the apostles, did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. You would think after 39 lashes, they would go out and think twice about it. 
and they didn't. Temple, house, proclamation, teaching that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. My beloved, if, if joy and the proclamation of the gospel is the product of your suffering from the name of Christ, then you can have great assurance even this day that you really do know Jesus, that you really are believing God by, believing, by obeying God by believing in the Savior. If joy and the proclamation is what you experience when you suffer for his name's sake. If you remember from our study in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 5, we're told this, listen, in the days of his flesh, speaking of Jesus, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and with tears. Why? Because we're told, verse 8, although he was a son, although the son of God, God himself, he learned obedience through what he suffered. See, how did Christ learn obedience if he was sinless? He didn't learn obedience because he was sinning. He learned obedience through suffering to bring honor to God. His love for the Father, his faithfulness to the mission to seek and save the lost, his merciful and gracious heart for sinful man was revealed in his willingness to obey God through suffering. Like the apostles, he was falsely accused. Like the apostles, he was unjustly arrested. Like the apostles, he was beaten. Far worse because he was beaten by the Romans. But unlike the apostles, his suffering was of an eternal nature. He suffered like no man has ever suffered before or since. In other words, he learned obedience through unimaginable suffering by being killed, by being hanged on a tree. See, the reason that the apostles used that language, quoting Moses in Deuteronomy 21, when he, they accused the Sanhedrin of hanging him on a tree, we know that to mean that they believed he was cursed by God. Deuteronomy 21:23 says, Cursed is a man who is hanged, literally impaled, on a tree or a pole made of wood. Well, Jesus, the sinless Son of God, was impaled on a cross made of wood. And he was considered cursed by God, even by God, not just these sinful men. He experienced the greatest dishonor of any man, bearing the sins of the world upon his bleeding back, so that sinners like us, guilty of Jesus' blood, living lives of perpetual disobedience to God, sinners like us, deserving of God's curse, can what? Can be forgiven, receive forgiveness, and have Repentance and reconciliation with the living God. By Jesus taking the curse that we deserved on the cross, we get the blessing that he deserved. By Jesus being dishonored before God and man, we, deserving of dishonor, can be honored before God and man. By Jesus being counted worthless on the cross, the pearl of great price, By him being counted worthless, we, worthless sinners, can be counted worthy through his obedience. All through him. My beloved, if Jesus, the Son of God, had to learn obedience through suffering, how much more we adopted sons and daughters? If Christ had to, then so must we. Learning obedience through suffering means learning to rejoice in the midst of the suffering. It means coming out of your suffering for the name of Christ and actually continuing to proclaim the gospel boldly. It means understanding that in the midst of your suffering for Jesus, not because you were living foolishly, but in pursuing Christ when you suffer, 
You too are being counted worthy in God's eyes, not because of what you're doing, but because of what it reveals. Might it be that we don't really know the joy and the courage that we see of the apostles here in Acts 5 because we haven't learned obedience through suffering? Might it be? Might it be we lack joy and we lack courage because we haven't learned obedience through suffering? We obey, we obey when it's convenient and we obey when it's easy. Right? I mean, this is the Lord's day and you're here today, but this isn't, well, maybe you say, yeah, you keep preaching. It's pretty, I'm suffering through that. <laughs> Gathering on Sunday generally isn't, isn't suffering. Going to a Bible study is not suffering. Identifying yourself as a Christian on Facebook is not suffering, my beloved. But when we know our obedience will bring pain and be hard and possibly be persecuted, we have a tendency to shy away. It's It's an easy thing in the Western world to claim Christ without much suffering for his name. But our time and place is no excuse for us not learning obedience through suffering. Just because it's easy to claim Christ and go to church here in the Western world now, and it is easy, There's, we don't have people standing outside these doors waiting to persecute you for being in church today. Not yet. But just because it's easy doesn't mean it's right to avoid suffering. Might it be that we do not suffer much for the name of Jesus because we don't obey much? Maybe we're more like the Sadducees. They wanted the status quo. They didn't want to disturb the peace. They wanted Rome to stay in check so they could keep their paycheck and their power instead of living the lives that God has called us to. Not middle-class Americans. That's not your calling as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Jesus said what? Deny yourself. Deny your desires, deny your wants, deny your dreams, deny yourself, pick up your cross. That's the ordained suffering for you, son or daughter of a king. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and what? And follow him. Follow Christ. Paul was clear with his disciple Timothy when he said in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, listen, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Anyone who desires to live a godly life and following Christ in this fallen world will be persecuted. The apostles understood that. And they just simply obeyed God and let the consequences and the results, they left that up to God. And in the midst of their persecution, the courtroom trials, the 39 lashes, they rejoiced and they proclaimed. They rejoiced and they proclaimed now, I'm not, I'm not telling you to go out and look for suffering. I guarantee you, if you ask the apostles, option number one, you can be, you can be whipped 39 times, or option number two, you don't have, they would say, we'll take option number two. We don't want to be flogged. I'm not telling you to seek out suffering, but I am telling you to simply obey God. That's what the apostles did. And persecution will come if you faithfully obey, if you simply obey the living word. I am suggesting from the text that if we, if we suffer a little, it's only because we obey a little. If we only suffer a little in this life, the snide remark, the lost friendship, maybe I didn't get that promotion at work, it's only because 
we are obeying a little. What if, I'm going to close, what if you were to forsake the soft, comfortable, status quo, middle class life that we enjoy right now in the Western church and you were to live a life totally sold out for the leader and savior of the world? In every respect of your life, submitting to God's revealed word. Every piece, knowing and doing what the Bible tells us to do. You say, well, I'm a Christian, I'm supposed to. That's what I'm, I'm, I want to do, but do we? Do we pursue the knowledge of the word of God so that we can bring our entire life, our marriage, raising our children, our occupation, our entertainment, how we spend our money into submission to God's word that we might obey God in following Jesus? What if you were to use your time and money to make disciples of Jesus Christ instead of building up your 401k or spending that time watching the next Netflix series? What if? Would there be more persecution and suffering in your life? Likely. What if you were to speak out lovingly but boldly against all the radical immorality of our time, to truly speak out the murder of innocent babies, the destruction of gender, the abuse of power, the immoral curriculum that's now in our public schools, the insanity behind critical race theory. What if you did that, lovingly but boldly spoke the truth? Wouldn't there be more suffering for the name of Jesus? I think there would be. What if everyone at work knew you were a Christian? I mean, really knew you were a Christian. Not because you got a little fishy on your car, but not only by the way you live, but by the proclamation of the gospel in your office. Over the years, I've heard Christians come through these doors and say, you know, I really can't do that at work. I said, you can't because you might lose your job. Yeah, so i got to keep my job. I don't think that that's the right way to approach it. I'm not saying that we should be unwise But if we're not going to be the light in the darkness, even in our workplace, then what good are we in testifying to the leader and savior of the world? What if you said, I'm going to go to work because God gave me the job, and I'm going to live as a Christian and proclaim Christ as a Christian? Might there be suffering? Yeah, severe. Might end up losing your job. What if students, your fellow students, knew that you were a real follower of Jesus? What if your teachers knew that? What if they knew it by the essays that you turned in and the books that you read and the way that you dressed and the way that you served and the purity that you pursued? Would that not bring suffering? What if, my beloved, we gave up the radical individualism of this culture and actually strive to live as a community? That'll bring suffering. I think it's one of the reasons we stay alone. What if, my beloved, we did what the apostles did? Verse 42, every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ, the Christ is Jesus, the Messiah is Jesus, the Savior is Jesus. What if we lived every single day as the Spirit-filled witnesses that we are, teaching and preaching a crucified, risen Christ? telling everyone and anyone who's willing to listen that Jesus is Lord, 
regardless of the consequences, would there be more suffering? Would there be more persecution? Guaranteed. Guaranteed. But you'd also have the blessing of suffering honor, suffering dishonor for the name of Jesus. You would also have the blessing of the joy the apostles knew for being faithful witnesses to Jesus Christ. You would also have greater courage to continue to testify again and again to this Savior. I believe the text calls us to that, that we are to obey God in following Christ and suffering for His name. And I believe the text tells us that if you do that, joy and courage will be yours. Joy and courage will be yours. My beloved, obeying God is always smart. Disobeying God is always stupid. You can know you are being smart and obeying God by believing and following Jesus, and you can know you're following Jesus if you are willing to suffer for His name's sake. And joy and courage, according to this teaching, will be yours too. I would like to pray to that end, my beloved, that instead of striving each and every day to live the status quo, to have this very comfortable middle-class life, we will see that we are disciples of Jesus Christ and that we have the same commission the apostles received back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that we are witnesses to a crucified, risen, exalted Savior of the world. I'm going to ask God that He would bless us as a church with that understanding and that desire to be that bold, to suffer for the name of Christ, and that He would bless us with joy and courage. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in light of this text, we must admit that we are, most of us, far more concerned about the comfort in our lives than we are suffering for the name of Christ. I'm so thankful for the testimony of these men, men like us, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, with the power of your word. I ask, Lord, that you'd be gracious with the members here of Cambrian Park Baptist Church that we would desire full, complete, and total obedience to your word. And in that obedience, know, Lord, that we are living wisely. I pray as well, Father, that you would confirm the authenticity of our faith in our willingness to not only believe and follow Jesus, but suffer for Him. Father, make whatever changes you need to make in our lives, and you know what they are. Make those specific changes so that we, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, at work, at school, and even in this church, would be living testimonies to the power of the gospel. Make those changes, Lord, so that we might be, as a people, transformed, sanctified and counted worthy in your eyes. Make those changes, Father, so that we might be the most brilliant testimony here in San Jose and in Cambrian Park. We ask this in Christ's holy name. Amen.